0: Welcome. I'm Connor Beaton. And this episode is one of the, it's actually the final uh, installment of the Question the Rules of Men series that I did in partnership with uh, Saks Underwear and uh, produced by the Palant Group. And I just want to say, you know, in today's world, in 2019, I am, uh, I feel a lot of, of pride and, and, um, appreciation, specifically in gratitude for Saks, because, you know, they they really are going out on a limb on producing and, and being a part of a conversation to produce a conversation that's from men, for men, about men. And in a time where a lot of companies are coming under fire for producing those types of things, like you look at the Gillette commercial that, that Gillette did earlier on this year. I mean, it had uh, something like 32 million views. But it had two and a half million dislikes, right on YouTube <laughs> and only 800,000 likes. And so the commercial really came under fire. And so at a time when a you know a men's brand and company um, has come under a lot of heat just for being a part of uh, the conversation within men and masculinity, it's nice to see a company like Saxo step up to the table and endorse producing this type of series. So, um, you know, I just want to give them to, you know, kudos and a shout out to making this even possible. Uh, But secondly, Sachs actually went a step further and they said, you know, they actually asked me and they said, hey, Connor, you know, if you were to design a print uh, for a pair of boxers, what would that look like? If you were to design a a pair of Mantox boxers, what would that look like? And that was kind of interesting and kind of funny to me because if you had known me or if you, you know, if you've met me first off, you know that I'm not a big fashion person. It's just not a huge priority for me uh, at all. Um, (laughs) I would pretty much wear sweatpants and a t-shirt all the time if I could like, you know, stylish sweatpants, like, you know, comfortable sweatpants, but, uh, but sweatpants nonetheless. Um, And so they said, you know, if you were to design a, a pair of boxers, what would that look like? And, so I, I took on this challenge of designing a pair of, of boxers with sacks. And so the proceeds are going towards uh, the Man Talks community and, and uh, creating a bit of a um, basically like a scholarship for one man uh, or a couple men to be able to come to our men's weekend, um, which is incredible. And it's really meant to support, um, you know, men in underprivileged communities that would normally not have access to come to our, our weekends. So the 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 boxers are actually going towards a good cause, which is which is phenomenal. Um, but I think the the even you know the 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 cooler thing is that they said when do you want to launch them, what would you want it to represent, and and how would you create this? And so uh, I said, you know, I want them to launch on International Men's Health Day, which is November nineteenth, and I said I I want the boxers to represent men's health and not just men's mental health. And so I said, you know, I want the boxers to also incorporate. This like no nut November or no FAP November. Uh, for those of you who don't know what that is, it's a big men's health push and challenge for guys in November to not masturbate or not orgasm, not ejaculate, um, and and on top of that, to go and get checked, um, to go and get their prostate and their testicles checked for cancer. And so I said, I want the boxers to to not only represent the the sort of current climate that men are experiencing, the dichotomy between, you know, be hyper-masculine and and revert back, you know, it's not revert back, but be hyper-masculine and and be hyper-macho. And there's sort of this resurgence of that. Uh, And while at the same time, there's this other side that's being presented around be super vulnerable, be very open, like open up and get to know your emotions. And so I wanted the boxers to really represent this dichotomy, but also sort of the push of modern men's Health and wellness that is out there, and how a lot of men have really taken uh, the challenge of how do we as men communicate with each other when it comes to things like testicular cancer and losing a testicle or going through prostate cancer. Right, I know guys that that in their late twenties have lost a testicle. I've had a guy on the show that that had uh, testic- testicular cancer at, at age thirty, right, and had to lose one of his testicles, and so. How do we talk about this thing in, in, a, in a way where men from all different walks of life, whether they are Republican or conservative, um, whether they're Democrat and liberal, whether they are whatever you know, religion they believe in and whatever nationality they come from, that they'll engage in this conversation around men's health and wellness? And so the boxers, if you go and check them out, there's a link in the bio. They're on the Sax Underwear le- website. I'm going to link them up on my website, ConnorBeaton.com. The boxers are really a representation of that. And so <laughs> they have all of these crazy slogans on them. They are not PG, by the way. Uh, for, for example, there is a, uh, a logo that has a dick with wings on it. Um, and it says, use your brain, question the rules. <laughs> uh, and then it's got old school sayings, right? Like um, real men don't cry and don't be such a pussy. Uh, and then it's got the new school, like, you know, Spartan life and, um, you know, man talks and I've got your back. And so, you know, some of these, uh, and it also says, hashtag no and no nuts. Um, and so it's a very modern take on showing challenges that men are really experiencing. So if you want to go and support a good cause, um, if you want to, you know, maybe buy yourself a gift uh, in Men's Health Month or, or um, you know, if you want to buy your, your, your partner, uh, if you're listening to this, a gift for, uh, for Christmas, um, definitely go and check these out there. I put a lot of time and in work into them and I'd love your feedback. So if you like them, if you enjoy them, please do share them on social. Uh, They're they're pretty edgy. Um, They're old school. They're a lot of fun. And I've never done anything like this. So I would actually, from a creative and artistic standpoint, love to hear your feedback. Uh, But I would also just love your support so that we can uh, get a few underprivileged men uh, out to our weekends that are looking for some support in their mental health, in leveling up their life. So yeah, that's my piece. So let's talk about question the rules. Um, This episode is all about mental health, and joining me in this episode is Kevin Briel, who is a comedian, and uh, he had a talk called Confessions of a Depressed Comic. Uh, He's phenomenal and really brings a powerful insight as he is a comedian who had uh, attempted or thought about committing suicide. And he has an amazing TED Talk that got some uh, really incredible traction. And so he brings a a really unique perspective. Uh, Also joining me is a gentleman named uh, Eldra Jackson III. And Eldra has just one of the most powerful, powerful stories um, that I've ever heard. And he now does men's work after spending nearly three decades incarcerated. And he did um, some really uh, challenging things in his past. Um, Which he talks about in this episode and talks about spending three decades in prison and uh, a few years. He actually spent in solitary confinement. Uh, And then joining me is uh, Dr. Terry Real. And Terry Real is one of the most prominent uh, writers. He wrote a book called I Don't Want to Talk About It, The Hidden Legacy of Male Depression. Um, and he is, and has been for the last few decades, really seen as like the leading voice in men's mental health and wellness. So it's a really, really powerful conversation, um, in, in the essence of, of mental health, men's mental health this month. Um, please share this episode, please get it out there. Uh, We have the video on YouTube. It's great to watch. Um, but also, this conversation just needs to be had, and and what these guys are doing in their lives as well is really powerful. So we've got three very unique perspectives and backgrounds. So thank you so much for tuning in, and um, I hope that you support yourself and and the men in your life this month by doing one or two things specifically and intentionally to improve your mental health, whether that's Uh, signing up for something like one of the men's weekends that we have uh, coming up in 2020, whether that is going to get yourself checked this month, your, you know, your testosterone, your testicles, your prostate, and making sure that your, your physical health is, is in order, uh, or maybe it's going to hire a coach, uh, or go see a counselor or a therapist, uh, maybe for the first time and working on your own mental health to better yourself. So, that's my call. That's my invitation for you. And I would love to know what you're doing. And and lastly, man it forward, right? Man it forward. This is on the boxers, um, but it's really a slogan that I've had for years and years. It's just man it forward, right? Share this with one person, share the work that you're doing with one man, because you never know uh, the power that your story and that your work uh, will have and the impact that that will have on another human being. So man it forward. So without any further delay, Uh, Please welcome my guests and enjoy Question the Rules of Men, Mental Health Edition. All right, gentlemen. Thank you so much for joining me here on Question the Rules. Uh, So I wanted to start off today just by having a little bit of a dialogue with you about some of your defining moments around mental health. So maybe Terry, we'll just start with you. What was a defining moment for you that changed your perspective or relationship to mental health?
1: Well, I don't know about a moment, but as I wrote about in several books, uh, my dad was warm and loving and um, close and violent. Mm. And being raised by this man who I loved and feared kind of imprinted on me what an abuse of male power looks like and i think i spent the better part of my life trying to figure out what a healthy use of masculine power might look like it's kind of been the, the zen riddle of my of my life how to be a masculine powerful person and uh, not in any way be uh, violent how to have power with and not power over has been one of the great riddles of my life. Mm -hmm.
0: Yeah, I think we'll probably get a little bit more into how masculinity might impact that or how our views as men might impact that. But I appreciate that because I think that's a a very common theme that some uh, men face. So growing up as a boy, what did you see in terms of how your father uh, interacted as a man? Did Did he teach you things? of what he believed a man should be?
1: Oh, yeah. He was um, he was very extreme mm. uh, in despising anything that uh, he saw as weak or vulnerable or passive. And it, we'll probably get into it. I mean, he had his own story, of course, as to why he was so extreme mm. about it. Um, I, I became a therapist. to garner the skills I needed to talk to my dad about what the hell had happened to him. And it took me becoming a skilled therapeutic interviewer to get past his defenses and walls and finally get him to tell me his story. And um, like any son, uh, particularly with a flawed father that you love, I love my old man, I felt sorry for him. Um, We have to make sense out of them as people and dethrone them from a larger-than-life position and start to see them in their own context. But they have to open up and talk to us in order for that to happen.
0: Yeah, there seems to be some shame or some hesitation from past generations of men to open up. Can you give some context into maybe what the older generation feels and and why they don't feel like it's okay to open up and talk about certain parts of their past and certain parts of their life? I know for myself, my grandfather was in World War II and that was a chapter in his life that he just wouldn't talk Wouldn't talk about. He just wouldn't talk about it. And there were certain times in his life where he would you know. He would, he would open up about it, but it was very small details, and it sounded very hard for him to, to talk about. So can you give us a little bit more context on why that happens?
1: Well, the, the essence of traditional masculinity, the, traditional masculinity rests on two pillars. The, one is the delusion of dominance, power over instead of power with, and the other is the denial of vulnerability to the degree to which you're invulnerable, you're manly, to the degree to which you're vulnerable, you're unmanly. And so all these generation of booby boom, you know, my dad, World War II, um, they wouldn't talk to you because they wouldn't move into their own vulnerability. And because they'd been taught that any sign of vulnerability was weak and despicable. What's so sad about that is all of us sons, the whole generation of boys, are dying for our father's vulnerability. and our fathers are trying to toughen us up and make us strong when all we want is there. you know i I wrote in one of my books, sons don't need their father's balls. they need their hearts mm. And uh, a father's heart is not so easy to come by,
0: yeah, yeah, I mean, that's a great that's a, a really great. Quote and a really great great perspective that I think a lot of men could start to integrate. What do you see the challenges are when it comes to bridging the gap? You know, in your book, I don't want to talk about it. It's largely about this hidden legacy that a lot of men have when it comes to depression and pain and suffering, and we tend to hide those things behind um, behind closed doors because of the two pillars that you're talking about. Yeah, but one of the things that I do see is that a lot of men today are struggling to connect with their fathers in the way that you're talking about. So what were some of the things that you did to bridge that gap with understanding some of the challenges that your father had with mental health or his you know, his depression?
1: Well, my father struggled with depression his whole life. His father struggled with depression. I've struggled on and off with depression. Uh, and in my work as a therapist and working with men, I talk a lot about daring to change the legacy, hmm. that this work isn't just for you. Uh, can I quote myself? It's yeah, 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 yeah. <laughs> it's,
0: yeah, go ahead. yeah.
1: Family pathology rolls from generation to generation like a fire in the woods, taking down everything in its path until one man in one generation has the courage to turn and face the flames that man brings peace to his ancestors and spares the children who follow Mm. the best thing we can do for our kids is our own work yeah
0: yeah that's that's beautiful it's it's like generational healing in a sense yeah
1: a lot of the men that i work with won't do the hard work of reconstructing who they are for their own sakes and they certainly won't do it for their quote unquote you know controlling wives yeah but they will do it to spare their children
0: yeah, interesting.
1: I, I will say to a guy, even a tough guy who's hard to reach, I'll say to him, "What's your relationship like with your dad? How would you like your relationship to be with your kids? If you do the same thing your dad did, you're going to get the same thing he got. How about letting me teach you how to do it differently?"
0: Yeah, good, good incentive. Well, <laughs> yeah, no, it's it's true. It's very yeah, true. It's true. like it's about finding those access points, right, where we can connect and communicate and. And have a different type of dialogue. So I appreciate that. Uh, Kevin, same same question to you. Tell me a little bit about a defining moment where your relationship or your awareness, your perspective around mental health shifted.
2: Yeah. Um, like you said, I don't know if there's a, a specific moment. There's a couple that I could think of. There's two facets to it, I guess, for me. One was similar to you. Uh, my father was someone who struggled with depression, with alcoholism, with addiction. And it was different. He wasn't violent at all. He was completely passive and and vacant. It was like he didn't exist, like he wasn't there, or he didn't have a presence. And from a young age, you kind of pick up on the fact you're not supposed to talk about that, certainly outside the four walls of your home, or you're not supposed to bring that conversation anywhere. And it wasn't even really talked about in the four walls of my home. It was just obvious. It was just there and you observed it and That was it. And so from a young age, I kind of picked up on there's some level of shame or at the very least secrecy about this. And this isn't a conversation topic to really explore. And then for me, I went through experiences as a young kid where I really struggled with depression and I had no tools for how to deal with that. But I also just didn't have a mindset for how to deal with that. I didn't think I could talk about it, I didn't think I should talk about it. And so I kind of lived this. I put up a lot of walls, so no one could see it. No one could see in, and I thought that kept me safe, you know. Which is the great illusion: is you put up all these walls, and then no one can see you, but you can't see out at a certain point. And so, for years, for about four years, I, I lived that way, and it, it reached a, you know, a breaking point where I was a seventeen-year-old kid, and I hit this suicidal rock bottom on. A particular day and wrote a suicide note and and genuinely just didn't have a vision for my life that kind of extended past that exact moment in time. And that was a different type of awakening because I think when you're just struggling with it consistently, there's this element where you become numb to it and it does become a new normal and you kind of accept it in these ways, whether that's out of fear or shame or who knows. And so for me, that was this moment where I go, yeah, this is a real problem. If I don't want to be alive, that's an issue, obviously. And it it took that for me to really wake up to it. But I think there's so many different mindsets that are kind of modeled to you from your environment. And I had picked up on all these ones that said, you push it down, you push it down, you push it down, you hide it, you put up these walls, you run away from it, you pretend it's not there. So I had no real conception of what it meant to face it Head on. And so I just didn't. And you can do that for a day or a week, but you do that for long enough. And then eventually you just, you have to face it. And yeah. so for me, I kind of realized that in that particular moment, and it was a, you know, a dramatic moment, but it just helped me go, wow, this is a real thing.
0: Yeah. Was there a part of you that during that? that time where you started to experience depression, you started to battle and not not really like know who to go and talk to. Was there a part of you that f- kind of felt or believed this story of like, I have to hit rock bottom before things will get better? Yeah,
2: maybe. I think about that sometimes now because it's so it's so intense and it's so obvious in a way that you force yourself into these corners only so that you can work your way out of them maybe. I think that I just didn't have any higher awareness that this was a thing you know and i didn't think i had any conception of what even mental health meant you just kind of come into the world and there's all these different mental models or philosophies that you could follow and it just seems like all of them at the core just say do all these things to be happy and so you feel well if i'm the opposite of that then i must really be failing at everything and so you almost Mm -hmm. wonder if there's a deeper problem existing within your consciousness or maybe your intelligence or I just didn't know. And so yeah. I just kind of kept pushing it away. And I think that that was something that in the short term, you think you're avoiding pain, but in the long term, you're just accumulating it for later, you yeah. know? And I think that was what it kind of took for me to go, oh, there this is what later
0: looks like. Yeah. It's, I mean, it's interesting because I've Talk to a lot of guys where I'll ask them a the question, do you think you have to hit rock bottom yeah. before things get better? Yeah. And it's interesting because I know for myself in my life, I had that story. Yeah. You know, I believe this story of like I'm gonna bottom out yeah. before I start to rise up again. Yeah. And I see that as a common thread with a lot of guys where they have this internal belief of. Life has to fundamentally be destroyed and fall apart yeah. before I can start to repair. Yeah. And I think that there's a, you know, part of this conversation hopefully is like there are different ways to go about that. We don't always sure. have to bottom out to spring back up.
2: For sure. And I don't think that's a particularly productive mindset. You know, yeah. I mean, I don't think that really makes any logical sense, and maybe that's a part of it, but I I feel as though. There's this element of it's such an internal thing and it's completely invisible. You can't point at it and go, hey, hey, take a look at this, you know, or you can't really find any way to make it tangible. So I think you're kind of waiting for this moment to happen that makes it go, oh, that's what it really is. And so for me, just realizing that this will push me to a point where I don't even want to be here, yeah. that was sort of an epiphany, you know, versus just going, this is a prolonged, never-ending, kind of intangible flat numb feeling that I just live my life with. And so now, you know, you, you think about how you relate to mental health and stuff. And I think the biggest thing that just changes is you have a different awareness of what it even is in the first place and how you live with it on a day to day and how things might fluctuate or change, but you have a much healthier understanding of what it looks like. But when you're just in the middle of it and you don't have any consciousness around that, any awareness around that, you don't have any tools or skills in that area you just don't know and I think that's sometimes why it takes people to these big dramatic moments to have that awakening because they just they literally don't know better yeah it's
0: a good I mean it's a really great way of putting it so Eldra yes sir you have had quite the journey uh here and I want to thank you for being here you know your uh the work that you do has really inspired me and I think it's inspired a lot of people and uh so the same same question for you tell me tell me or tell us uh, a little bit about the defining moment for you that sort of shifted your awareness,
3: uh, your relationship to mental health. How much time you got?
1: Yeah. <laughs> <laughs>
3: defining moment, uh, hmm. two that stand out. The theme here, the common theme here that I'm hearing is, is, is the theme with fathers. Uh, my father was a Vietnam veteran. He earned a Purple Heart in Vietnam which is something that he never talks about. Uh, and when he came back from Vietnam, when I was growing up, he was a drill sergeant. Mm. So that's the household I grew up in, stern, strict, my way or the highway. And, and, and growing up, when I was growing up, corporal punishment was, uh, was legal. It was accepted. I mean, hell, they used to give permission slips in school. You know, you can either get it in school or you can get it at home. Uh, that is a piece that contributed to, uh, where I was as far as mental health was concerned. And, uh, I had an experience when I was younger. I've got a sister that's four years, my junior, and I had experiences with babysitters, Mm. both male and female, where, uh, 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 sexual predation was involved. And a piece of that for me was submitting to a male babysitter at the age of seven in order to save my younger sister. Mm. And so for me, that was the real break with my mental health because I established at that time that loving another person was something that made me weak caring about another person was something that put me in danger if something that put me in jeopardy so i constructed a, a persona that was that was hard that was uncaring that was unfeeling that just didn't give a damn mm. and this was at the age of 7 those seeds were sown and so i was i was i was in a place within myself that was closed off and shut off and i didn't have anybody around me Number one that knew about that or had the tools to see that there were some symptoms there there were some signs there there were some destructive behaviors that I was engaging in, but it was you know pawned off as oh he's just being a boy, boys will be boys mm. and if it was something that was a little too out of line, well, just beat his ass and 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 so that was my relationship to uh mental health at a young age uh i I was an athlete so that allowed me to hide based off of what people saw on the field i was able to create another persona Mm. something else to hide behind you know people saw you know uh my prowess on the field and it was like okay that's him right there they didn't see the real me and uh an episode occurred where a friend and i uh Wrecked his mom's car, stole his mom's car and wrecked his car. And so sports were eliminated from my life. And so I went out into the gutter and picked up gang banging. That compounded my mental health issues because that culture taught me and trained me and took advantage of what I had learned as a youngster, the sternness, the hardness, the uncaring, the unfeeling, it it was able to capitalize on what was already inside of me, the the seeds that were already there. And that allowed me to thrive and flourish Mm. in, in, in destructive criminal life lifestyles, the underground world. And, uh, eventually it led to, multiple years of incarceration. I did two stints uh, in in what they call California Youth Authority. That's boys' prison. I, I went there twice before the age of 18, and uh, I got out. The second time I got out, I was out for 21 days and committed crimes in the community that netted me a life sentence. I was sentenced to 17 years, running consecutive with seven a life. I ultimately did 24 years in the California prison system. I I I I came back out into the community in 2014. So I'm now, what, four and a half, five years removed from uh incarceration. Uh while inside, I I I was found by an organization called Inside Circle. Following uh another stint in the hole, I was in solitary confinement for attempting to kill another man, stabbed him quite a few times. My wife asked me not to say how many times. Uh, And while I was in the hole, I was in a unit that also housed uh, Charles Manson and Sirhan Sirhan. And they were in solitary as well, but they were allowed to go out and and, and, and engage with other people, engage with other humans without restraints. I had gotten to a point with the things I had done in my life up to then, where I went, I was in belly chains and shackles. I was on what they call standalone walk-alone status. I mm-hmm. mean, anywhere that I went, I had a guard on either side of me, and the gunner was following with the Mini-14. And once I got out onto the yard by myself, they'd take off the shackles. And there was a moment where I'm, I'm sitting there, and I'm like, damn, Charles Manson and Sirhan Sirhan, two of the most infamous people in California prison history, this dude, you know, Charles convinced people to massacre other people, but they're allowing him around other people. And I can't go anywhere around other people. Something about this just doesn't sit right. I don't know what needs to change or how it needs to change, but that opened me up to being willing to uh, try something new.
0: Yeah. I mean, it sounds like The trauma of your childhood in some ways really informed
3: some of the rest of the decisions that that you would go on to make. The trauma that I experienced in my childhood forged who I was. Mm. I chose, I made some decisions at a very young and in an uninformed age to make decisions about how my life would go and who I would be. Mm. And and that was all trauma-informed. That shaped and formed who I was, and I carried that with me. Hell, I carry it today. I I still work on it today. But it was what led my choices and decisions into my 30s. Mm. You know, you've done
0: a lot of, I mean, you've you've done time, you've been around these types of men, you've now started to rehabilitate these men. This is actually a question for all of you guys, but what do you see are some of the rules that we as men try to abide by that cause some of this dysfunction, some of this chaos?
3: The rules that I've seen in my experience is number one that men don't cry, men don't have emotions. The only emotion that men in my circles, the men that I have experience with, are uh, allowed to express and be respected is anger, and generally that anger is 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 served best in the form of rage. If I'm raging, that's masculine. That means I'm a man. That means I'm strong. Anything short of that, you know, happiness, fear, uh, 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 sadness, no. Mm. That's weakness. Yeah. What about you guys? What do you think? Um,
2: for me, I think maybe that we have a hard time being willing to learn. And I think the way I grew up, not having a father figure present at all, I was just afraid to ask people for help about anything. And I think that you kind of come up with these weird ideas about who it's okay to learn stuff from and who it's not okay to learn stuff from. And there were people in my life who could see what I was going through and would try and and reach out and help me. And I couldn't accept it, not because I didn't want to change, not even because I didn't feel like I had a problem or I didn't have the self-awareness or whatever, just literally because I felt like that wasn't okay and that that was somehow weak to to accept help from someone else and i think it wasn't modeled to me to be mentored or to have anyone with who's a little bit further along down the path maybe share something with you or share an insight with you that could help you mm-hmm. so i didn't know what that really meant so i just rejected everything and thought that i could maybe build my identity around being i figured all this out on my own and i think i kind of still struggle with that to this day a little bit mm-hmm. where it almost means more to me to do something without any help, even though it's illogical, even though I know that that's not the best way to live your life, even though I know that's not helpful, even though I know all the stuff intellectually, there's this part of my ego almost that goes, yeah, but I did that all on my own, you know, <laughs> and there's this part <laughs> of you that just goes, that loves that. Yeah. And I think I, uh, yeah, I mean, that's not something I've spent a lot of time thinking about. It just kind of came up in this moment. But I think there's an element of that certainly for me. And so I didn't want anyone showing me the way. I wanted to bump on all the different rough edges and have my own cuts and bruises and all that kind of stuff. But I couldn't ever tell you why. I mean, I don't know what that gives you other than maybe some internal feeling of accomplishment. But even then, you know, it's ridiculous. you know. And I think that was something that was hard for me and is still hard for me. And I think that's why, and I don't know a ton about it, but I feel like that's why the father figure is such an archetypal role in history and in culture, because it's your first access point to understanding that, you know, and to being a part of that and to understanding it's okay to learn. Because I think maybe there's some element of vulnerability with just even saying, hey, I don't know. And I think that's difficult. And so for myself, It's funny when I look back on it and it's easy to create new narratives of the past and go, you know, I was all on my own and all these things. But when I really am transparent and honest with myself, there were people who cared about me. There were people who wanted to know my story and who I was and what I was trying to. And there was actual intelligent human beings who said with words while looking in my eyes, I can see you're going through a hard time. And you push it away and you push it away and you push it away. And so I think that's something that was maybe just an unwritten rule that I felt I needed to abide by. And
0: maybe in some way, a way I thought I could prove myself. Yeah. It's almost like our competitive nature, right? It's like, I'm going to prove to you that I can do this, that I can perform, that I can win, that I can be successful. The irony is no one cares about
2: that. You know what what I mean? (laughs) Like The irony is there's no prize for that. The irony is, is that there's no extra points for that type of mindset. It's actually within yourself, and I think that's one of the areas I'm happy to have changed a bit in, and I think I need a lot more work in that mm. area, is to be able to say, hey, you're a little further down this path than I am. What do you think about this problem? And even now, I notice myself, I'll tell someone about a problem, especially if I'm talking to someone who, and I, I'm lucky to have a few super solid mentors. I notice that sometimes I'll even share my problem, and I'll pre-frame it with an answer. Being, mm. You know, I'll say, hey, this is what I'm struggling and this is what I think I should do, and I've got all these different ideas. It's like it's almost hard for me just to say, this is my problem, what do you think? It's almost as though I have to say, no, I've spent a lot of time thinking about yeah. this and all the different possibilities, and only now do I come to you with it. You know,
0: yeah.
2: I think there's something very odd about that.
0: Mm. Yeah, thank you. I appreciate that. Terry, what do you think?
1: Well, I think if you put these two guys together, it would be my answer. Um, <laughs> from Eldra, I, I would say... It's really key that um, invulnerability is unmanly, and the the clearest manifestation of that is feelings. You can't have any feelings. Uh, you you're allowed anger, and one more I would say you're allowed lust. Th- those two feelings are allowable for a man. Nothing else. Um, the other thing that I took from listening to algebra was the, uh, escape into power. Hmm. Uh, anger is okay, but rage is really manly. And, uh, so a combination of cutting yourself off from your feelings, coupled with flying into what I call grandiosity, better than an attack is really central to masculinity. And then w- listening to you, uh, m- my language for what you're describing is that you learn to be anti-dependent, hmm. needless and wantless. I'll take care of it myself, which is also very masculine. But it's very masculine because all of us boys needed somebody to take care of us and we were told to take care of it on our own. Or it wasn't addressed, you know? Well, let me have my martini and then I'll talk to you. Yeah. And you learn not to depend on anybody because there's nobody dependable to depend upon. You know, we talk about the masculine code and masculine culture, but we forget it's not some abstract principle. That masculine code comes to you through the drunk father who doesn't tend to your worries or your tears. That code comes from the violent father who hits you with a belt and tells you to stop crying. The code of masculinity is transmitted to us through people, through other boys, through teachers, and uh, most emphatically through our our parents. Um, I wonder if a girl, if a daughter, would have been left on her own as much as you were left on your own. For mm-hmm. example, we know that little babies, if they're if they're pink and they cry, they get attended to. If they're blue and they cry it's more often we'll let them cry it out from infancy Mm -hmm. we men are subject to the code of not being vulnerable
0: yeah yeah it's it's interesting it's uh i usually call it the one rule of men right and the one rule of men is very similar to the rule of fight club which is you don't talk about it right it's like we we can see that very much pervasive in our culture and then that sort of is, is systemic, and it, you know, it's it's interesting because I think a lot of the conversations that we're having are about some of the challenges that men are facing, and I think it's it's a very real sentiment in you know in male culture right now, in masculine culture, where I I can feel this even when I read the news or see certain articles or videos where I'm like man, like m- us men are really getting a lot of shit right now. Like we're really getting hit with a lot of stuff. And I hear a lot of men that specifically say, like, it feels like we are under attack. And you have words like toxic masculinity being thrown around. And men are really on the defensive, right? Like we really, f- I-, I feel like a lot of guys that I talk to are like, I feel like I'm up against the ropes. Like, and I'm just getting my ass handed to me a little bit. And so I'm, I'm interested to get your take on toxic masculinity? Because I think a lot of the times what I see is that we take toxic shame, or we just take shame, and we lump it into toxic masculinity. We take trauma, and we lump it into toxic masculinity. We take a lot of these other pieces, and we've we've sort of uh, labeled toxic masculinity with all these other pieces. So what are your thoughts on what parts of masculinity might actually be toxic, or do you think that that's... Like, what's your take on that? Maybe I'll just start with you.
1: Well, I think it's mostly toxic. Mm. I think the code of invulnerability and dominance. I think the refusal to see yourself as an ecological part of a system, but always above the system, controlling it, whether it's your own emotions or your body or your kids or your partner or the planet or mother nature. Uh, I think that uh, there's a real possibility if we don't move out of this masculine code, we're all going to die. Mm. <laughs> I mean, I don't want to be too, like, whatever about it. But if we keep placing ourselves above nature, we're going to screw things up royally. And that is the essence of of masculinity. But um, I don't... I. I People say about my work, it really pisses me off, actually. People say I'm trying to feminize men or I'm trying to undo masculinity. That is bullshit. Mm. I don't think there's anybody doing men's work that wants to turn men into women. No. I think that is a troglodyte's response. <laughs> what, what I want from the guy, you know, John Bradshaw said a million years ago, pass it back or pass it on. And I want us to sift through the legacy of what we've been handed, keep what's good, and, and put to rest what's toxic uh, here and there in our in our lifetime. But I refer rich aspects of traditional masculine. I talk to men about learning to become real family men. And that's an ideal that I use in my therapy. And another one is being, being a generous gentleman. Mm. Like when, you're, when your partner wakes you up at 11 o'clock at night because they're worried about little Timmy, and you want to go to sleep, you ask yourself, in that moment, well, what would a generous gentleman do right now? Maybe a generous gentleman would stay up and listen for five minutes mm. and then go to sleep. So there you know, loyalty, strength, bravery, courage. There are a lot of things uh, in the traditional role that we can refurbish. But we have to take them out of context. Mm. The context is rotten.
0: Yeah, and it seems to be a challenging time to to pull some of those pieces apart. There seems to be a lot of stuff that's getting uh, chunked in with masculinity right now and, and with men specifically, and largely because of the things that you're talking about, um, which I think is incredibly important.
1: Well, uh, there's, while I'm doing sayings, there's another AA saying, hurt people, hurt people. Yeah. And we've been talking about men's trauma, but we also need to talk about men's moving from that trauma, from that shame, into grandiosity. Into better than superiority and attack, mm. because central to masculinity is also the theme of moving from the one down, helpless, defective feeling up into the one up, superior position, moving into indignation, seeing yourself as an angry victim, and then attacking. Mm. You know, one of the great things that uh, I learned from Jim Gilligan, who's been working with prison population for 40 years, is every perpetrator feels like a victim. Everybody's a hero in their own story. And uh, the role of uh, kind of righteous, avenging, angry victim is central to masculinity. Hmm. So we have to... um, The reason why we're in so much trouble these days is because we've been offensive. And we have to... Deal with those offensive parts of masculinity and embrace the more relational parts.
0: Yeah, that's I th- that's very very well said, uh, Eldra. I'm curious to get your take on just some of the pieces that Terry was talking about, but but also from your own perspective, how have you seen how have you seen toxic masculinity show up? Is that something that you talk about? Is it something that you have seen? Well, you know, when you were growing up, when you were in prison, now that you're doing rehabilitation work, how have you seen uh, that shift and change?
3: Uh, have I seen toxic masculinity in my walk? I've seen hyper toxic masculinity in, in in the alleys that I've traveled in. Uh, and, and to begin to answer the, the, the first piece of your question, the aspects of of What's termed toxic masculinity now, I think what stymies the conversation is the idea of masculinity Mm. and people tying masculinity to manhood. Mm. Two different things, two very different things. All males have aspects of masculinity, but all males aren't men. And so in the work that we do, what we, what we seek to do is identify what's mine and what somebody else's. So if somebody is talking about toxic masculinity and I'm a man and there are aspects of my maleness that just will not allow me to engage in certain toxic aspects, you're not talking about me.
0: Mm. You're
3: not attacking me. That's your shit. It doesn't stick to me. So that's, in my opinion, what is stymieing the conversation. There's a defense that as soon as men hear toxic masculinity, they think that they are being attacked. That's not what I'm doing. I'm not attacking anybody. What I'm uh, talking about are, again, those aspects that as males, we tend to take on and define as masculine, and where in there are there aspects that are toxic? Where in there are there aspects that I need to disregard and pick up the the the, the positive attributes mm. that for me, is where the conversation is at and and in my experience where i ha- I have seen it again, it goes to This script, this unwritten script about what makes a man, what defines a man. And oftentimes that script that's passed down, that's handed down, is warped. It's twisted. And so the work for me is to get in there and tear away those pieces, everything that's been passed down and handed on, handed down, pick it up, look at it, question it, and see, does this fit me? Mm. Do these shoes fit? If they don't, chuck them off to the side. Find those things that feel right and keep me in congruency, mind, body, and spirit with natural law. For me, that's what a man does. As a man, that's what I seek to do.
0: Yeah, and how how important do you guys feel that things like initiation uh, into manhood are? Like, how, How important actually is that? Because it seems like part of the conversation has been that initiation for men has kind of faded away. And I'm curious to see if you think that that's an important piece to moving into these more healthier, uh, integrated forms of masculinity where we have healed through trauma, where we can see our shame, where we can admit faults. Um, do you think that that's an important
3: part? It is an important part. Initiation, ushering uh, young males into manhood is is a it's mandatory mm. in order to have the next generation come up and be healthy males because only healthy males can help support young males usher into manhood and help, you know, in those places where we're trauma informed and, and, and walk and guide. I can take a young male and, and, and help him along his journey and, and go off into where his trauma is because I've been there and show him how to reframe that and not allow that to define who he is and not allow that to uh, have him go out into the world spewing poison and venom at everybody from that place. My experience puts me in a place to be able to show him then how to be healthy. Yeah. How, again, how to reformat, how to reframe. It's, it's, it's a lost art initiation ushering a young man across the river into manhood. Otherwise, we're left to our own devices. We're left running around with other males who have sick and twisted ideations about what it is to be a man, and we're just continuing the same destructive cycle. Yeah, yeah, I like that. Terry, just really quickly, just
0: to to get your insight on initiation, and if you do think it's important, how do we start to go about this? Because one of the biggest questions that I get consistently from men and from women is how do I take my son through the process of initiation so he is integrated, so he knows how to deal with shame or insecurities or trauma if there has been that.
1: Yeah, um, uh, you know, we gave our, I'm Jewish, we gave our kids a bar mitzvah and and, and because I've been doing this work, I had six men uh, surround my boys one, one at a time. And each of them spent a day with them, teaching them what it meant to be a man. Hmm. And it, it, it ran the gamut from going into the Everglades and hunting alligators to uh, painting at the Museum of Fine Arts to going to Provincetown to Game Art uh, because one of the men was gay and he wanted to share hmm. what being a gay man was, was like. So I think boys need mentors and they need that second birth. You know, ideally, once a man is initiated, maybe he gets to relax about not having to prove his masculinity all the time. That would be a nice thing. Hmm. But I do want to say this. In, the, in our current world, it's really important, I believe, to um, not limit the mentorship of boys to men. Uh, single women can raise boys. Lesbian parents can raise boys. You don't need a boy to turn a boy into a man. You need an adult to turn a child into an adult. So um, a lot of folks in the men's movement are really about only a man can raise a man. And uh, I want to empower the women with their with sons to mm. feel perfectly competent to do that initiation uh, as well.
0: Yeah, it's it is one of the biggest concerns. Um, you know, like on Instagram and Facebook, I'll have women reach out all the time that are single mothers saying, what do I do? You know, how do I, how do I help? uh, How do I help my son? But in terms of some of the pieces that you think are important when it comes to initiation, when it comes to raising strong, integrated, healthy, uh, young men, what are some of those components that, that we should all know about?
1: Well, for me, the essence is wholeness. Um, you know. What traditional masculinity and femininity does to both sexes is it splits us in half, so that uh, this half is called feminine and this half is called masculine, and I'm gonna get rid of this half and just do this half. When what I want is big, strong-hearted men, uh, and I want smart, sexy women, I want both sexes to have all of the aspects of one human being. Can I tell you a story? Yeah, please. So I was privileged to be in Maasai land in Tanzania, in a very remote Maasai village, and I was with people who knew them. So I had basically a men's group at night with the elders for three nights, and we talked about everything—God and women and death—and and I asked them in America. I said, "There's a there's a debate." about what makes a good Marani, a good warrior, a good man. Uh, some people think that a good man is gentle, and some people think that a good man is fierce. What do you think? And this little guy must have been 300 years old, you know. It goes from Maasai to Swahili to English and back again. And he crooked his finger, and blah, 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 And he, here's what he says. And I've lived by this, and I teach the men I work with to live by this this old Maasai guy. He said, I have no interest in talking to you about what makes a good Marani. I'm only interested in talking to you about what makes a great Marani. He said, now listen, when the moment calls for fierceness, a good Marani is a killer. When the moment calls for tenderness, a good Marani lays down his sword and shield and is sweet like a little baby. He said, what makes a great Marani is knowing which moment is which. And that's my ideal. When the moment calls for tenderness, get in touch with your "quote unquote" feminine side and be a sweetheart. When the moment calls for action, stand up and and take no prisoners. But know which moment is which, and have access to all of your humanity.
0: Hmm. Yeah, that's really well put. Really, really well put. Well, uh, I have a few more questions. One of one of them that I wanted to dig into just briefly. Uh, is we see a lot of men in decline, and this is we can see this in you know college graduation rates and uh, in the mental health issues, whether it's depression or rising levels of anxiety or suicide rates for men, especially are inc- incredibly high and continuing to rise. And uh, you know I think part of this conversation that we've been having are what are the constructs or the beliefs or the issues that are leading to that. And one of the things that I want to talk about are what are the parts of masculinity that we want to reestablish, that we want to bring back in, that we, that we need to collectively uh, start to promote more of and, and um, be proud of and be, be okay
3: with. Um, so maybe I'll just start with you and then I come to you, Kevin. Uh, what the, the, the first thing that comes to my mind is something you spoke about earlier. The piece about asking for help mm. is huge. Asking for help. I don't know everything. I don't have access to everything. I need other people. I need connection. That uh, uh, for me is number one or 1A. And, and, and right alongside that is emotional literacy, an emotional level of intelligence, being in contact with all of my emotions, being in contact with both sides and being able to integrate everything and uh, not stuffing any one part because the more that I stuff that pressure cooker is sooner or later, it's going to bubble over and it probably won't be pretty when it does. So being uh, aware of that and, and, and honoring that, that I am an, an emotional being because males don't like to believe that they are emotional be- beings, don't like to own that fact. And, and it's just not so, you know, just thinking and feeling that that is, is evidence that I'm an emotional being because I'm, I'm, I'm exhibiting shame about having emotions. So, uh, yeah, emotional intelligence is something that we really need to focus on, in my opinion. Mm. Yeah, I would agree with that for sure.
2: Kevin, what would you add? I mean, one thing that I think is kind of, more prevalent now than ever is there's so many different ways to get pleasure, there's so many ways to forget distraction, there's so many ways to kind of lose yourself and just tune out from yourself. And I think that's a way bigger issue than anyone talks about. And it's kind of as though, I thought about it before, if you don't learn how to lead yourself, the world just leads you around. And I think people are falling into these different addictions. and really dark, hopeless kind of places because they don't have a mission or they don't have a purpose or they haven't actually been able to have any real conversations with people about what that looks like. Mm. And so you just find yourself seeking pleasure and seeking pleasure. And then when that doesn't work, you seek distraction from the fact that you're not feeling good. And there's just all these ways now to get outside of yourself, but you lose yourself in that. And I think that's one reason we don't have a lot of these conversations about mental health is because people are so busy distracting themselves. They forget that why they're distracting themselves in the first (laughs) place, right? And I think I could be just as guilty maybe as anyone to it at times. And there's something really deeply uncomfortable about wanting to look within yourself and do all this inner work. And I I totally get it. But I think we don't really address the fact that now more than ever, it's easy to live vicariously through other people and through media and through experiences that really have nothing to do with you as much as you might want to make yourself a part of that it doesn't really fill you up and you just have this feeling of being empty and kind of being hollow and you don't know what to do about it so that's scary so then you distract yourself more and i think that's a really dangerous loop and conversations that i have with people sometimes i just feel that's what's sitting at the bottom of all of it is they don't know how to lead themselves and so Mm -hmm. the world's just kind of leading them around in all these places and i can totally relate to it. Because when I'm depressed or I feel really anxious about something, that's the first thing you want to do. I think that's a very natural impulse in some way. It doesn't mean it's a healthy impulse or it doesn't mean it leads anywhere good. But I think that that is something we just ignore. And a lot of times stuff we were talking about earlier, all these negative outcomes and all these negative outputs from masculinity, I think people kind of forget nobody wants to be that way. You know what I mean? Nobody wants to wake up in that spot. And I think we lose the awareness that when people act out or do something wrong or they're exhibiting behavior that isn't positive. Everyone around, and especially in the culture, just acts as though you knew the exact rules of how to be a man and you stepped outside of it. And it's like, yeah, if that was true, then, then yeah, that would be one thing. But these, these kids aren't being raised by anyone and mm. people don't have fathers and there's not connection with it. So it's not so simple to just go, here's the negative outputs and look how bad they are. It's like, what are the inputs, you know? And I think there's been times in my life that only recently I've been able to even talk about or bring out of my <laughs> subconscious where there's just so much shame and embarrassment around not being able to do something that a man should be able to do. And that's a real thing. That's not an intellectual construct. That's damaging. Mm -hmm. And I think people don't put any time into that. And if you're someone who's had those experiences, then you can just tune out from the world and distract yourself with stuff. That's what you're going to do. And I think sometimes it would just help if all of us, aside from gender, aside from political beliefs or religious beliefs or whatever you believe about how to operate in the world, just remember that nobody wants to live that way. And so people are, there's a larger problem that's happening. And we should talk about that and have a tiny bit of empathy for the fact that not everyone had someone further down the path guiding them and showing them where to go and where to turn and the common mistakes. And I think there's a real sadness to that that nobody wants to explore because it's so heavy. We don't know who's responsible. But I think that's something that I've started to think about more as those experiences are damaging and they're not anything that anyone would ever want to have happen to them. But they are happening and the ripple effects are really large. And we just need to think a bit about that and how we're going to change that.
0: Yeah. I mean, something that you touched on in there that I think is incredibly important is the idea of purpose. Yeah, and I think one of the to go back and quote Fight Club again. Yeah, (laughs) because I love Fight Club, and it's I you know I think it's an amazing movie about the the sort of masculine climate. But there's a scene in there where Tyler Durden, uh, Brad Pitt's character, starts to talk to the guys that are gathered for Fight Club, and he sort of explains the rule and the whole thing, and then he proceeds to talk about the the war of men in in a way and, and basically I don't remember what he says verbatim, but he says something along the lines of in the in the we are the forgotten children of the post industrial age. And the war of men now is the war of refining ourselves within ourselves. And the, the idea there is that so many of us are distracted. So many of us are lost, in a sense, purposeless, just sort of meandering around. And of course, when, when that's happening, there's consequences to that. So my question for you, Terry, is how, how do you see purpose fitting into a man's life? And how do you define purpose for the men that you've worked with? Because you've been working with men for decades now. And so I'm curious to, to get your take on that.
1: Um, you know, it, it, it's like the the last words of the German poet Goethe. Uh, only connect. The the way we quote unquote turn boys into men in the traditional setup is through disconnection. We disconnect them from their feelings. We disconnect them from vulnerability. We disconnect them from other people. You're supposed to be independent. You know. People talk about women not having voice in relationship, but men don't have voice in relationship either. Women don't talk about what they need because a good woman uh, serves others and you don't want to be selfish. Men don't talk about what they need because a man isn't supposed to have any needs. What's all this squishy need stuff? (laughs) So, you know, neither sex is getting their needs met. Um, I talked to the men I work with about the difference. I'm very interested in listening to you because I talk about the difference between gratification and relational joy. Gratification is a short-term pleasure. It's what our country runs on. And it's great in its place. It's fine to have short-term pleasure. Relational joy is the pleasure, a deeper down pleasure that you feel just by being there and being connected parents understand this there are times when you want to throw your kid out the window but there's also joy in being there and being a family even though it's not gratifying most men don't know shit about relational joy they've never experienced it and and it's not an ideal in traditional masculinity but what we know from psychology is we are born to connect little infants start looking for connection within hours you know it's the one thing that will make us happy. So I'm going to put the purpose as being connection, mm-hmm. connection to ourselves and having a good relationship with ourselves and connection to the people we love and having a good relationship with them. Start with that, start with being a family man and then radiate out the, you, you spoke Well, we've all been speaking about boys and men initiation. Look, a boy is somebody on the make. A boy is, the question of a boy is what you got, what, 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 you, what am I going to get from the world? I believe a man's question is what is the world asking of me right now? What is the right action? What is being called for? And um, it's not about me, 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 me. And I talk to men not about altruism, I don't believe in altruism, but about enlightened self-interest, happy wife, happy life, Uh, happy family, happy guy. It's in your interest to learn some of these relational skills, open up your heart, and connect to everybody else. They'll do better, and you'll feel a lot better. Trust me, you will. Yeah. Well, I mean, and it seems
0: to be the thing... You know, you're talking about the, the relational interest and the connection. It seems to be the thing that so many men are really craving. In a, in a lot of ways, we, we can see that in our culture, that many men are, are thriving, are, are seeking connection, right? Dating apps, <laughs> Tinder, it, it's all some form of connection, right? The obsession with social media, porn, all of it is designed to give us as men some form of a hit. Of connection like if you look at the data behind why men watch porn a lot of it isn't actually about desire it's actually about them wanting to connect just in some way
1: well we allow lust and anger as the only two emotions that men are allowed yeah so a lot of men filter all of their emotional needs through with the sex and the sexual encounter uh, I talk about distinguishing between your needs and your wants I I wanna make love to you. I need a hug right now. And a lot of men don't acknowledge their emotional needs. It's about becoming emotionally literate. As you become emotionally literate and own your own experience, you own what you need to own in order to have a healthy relationship. We've been talking about guys as if they're individuals, but all of us live in a context and we have to learn to be worthy of that connection. We have to take care of our biosphere and not pollute it with a lot of male privilege and junk that we're going to pay for in the end.
0: Mm. Yeah, I think that's really well put. And you know, it's a it's an interesting segue because there was a great study done by Harvard over the course of 75 years. I'm sure you're familiar. I'm sure you guys are maybe all familiar with it. But I think the interesting thing is that it followed predominantly men. I think, I think it might have been all men, actually. All men. Yeah, all men. And over the course of 75 years, what they found is that the greatest predictor of our health, of our happiness and of our, mostly of our success, like reduced rates of heart disease and whatnot is our quality of our relationships, of the relationships around us. And one of the things that I see a lot of guys struggling with today is how to create those really healthy, connected masculine bonds between them and other men? Because oftentimes, you know, we can get in that competitive nature with even our buddies and not really talk about the things that are really important, like we're talking about today. They're really meaningful conversations. So what do you see are the blocks that some men are facing in building those types of relationships with other men? And how would you encourage them to to start to move past that normal conversation that they have. Maybe I'll start with you, Eldra.
3: The biggest block that I see, and I I always like to speak from the eye perspective from for for self, the biggest block is the emotion of fear. Mm. Uh, Fear of being uh, ridiculed, fear of being seen as weak, uh, fear of standing out and going against the grain, going against the norm. And, and for me, the way to get beyond that is to start to grow beyond, you know, the bullshit talk. You know, we can sit around and talk about going to the bar and somebody's got their eye on a girl across the room and, and everybody can sit there and, and, and keep score, keep tally. We can talk about that for hours. Ask the question, OK, yeah, we want to talk about women. Tell me about the first time you fell in love with a woman and got your heart broke. That's a conversation to have because then that opens the door to start going into the emotional intelligence and starting to share because people go through things like that. They just don't talk about them They'll go somewhere and and, and lock up in, in, a, in an apartment or something for six months and nobody will see them. And then they come back out and they've got the good face on and they're all strong. But it, you were just sitting in there going through a whole bunch of shit and never talked about it with anybody. Let's sit down and have that conversation. Yeah. Kevin, what do you wish that you knew uh, back in the day when you were going through
0: (laughs) tough times about being able to connect and open up with other guys?
2: Well, I guess what I wish I knew then was just how, how common it really is, you know what I mean? And how everyone's dealing with that. And people can say that they're not, but that's not real either, you know? And I think that's a huge piece. But I think the other piece comes back to something we've kind of touched on a little bit, which is just ego. And I think... I noticed this really funny thing where I can't open up to someone that I don't respect as another man. But if I do respect another man, then I'm suddenly like competing with him. You know what I mean? So it's like I can't respect this guy and open up to him. But then this guy who I can, it has to always be this. You're constantly like you think you use the words of proving your masculinity over and over again. And even when that isn't intentional. Or I wouldn't say that that's intentional. or I wouldn't even identify as the type of person who does that. But then you notice it, right? You notice yourself just so eager to share a certain thing that might look make yourself look a certain way. And you're always posturing and you're always trying to put your recent success or whatever it may be forward. And I think a lot of that comes down to ego and then fear you know, and fear of who you really are without all the external stuff and without what this person says about you or without what you've done or without what mountain you've climbed or thing you've built or whatever. Who are you really? And I think sometimes that's scary because we put so much time in those external things. Maybe we're not that amazing internally. And I think that's something I've really struggled with and still kind of continue to struggle with is just being able to connect with someone on a real level without always feeling like you need to prove something and would also without feeling that fear of, is this enough? And I think those are things that we just don't learn and we just don't talk about. And so then you're always kind of improvising in every single interaction and relationship you have. And you just kind of go with what the room seems to respond to. And you just mm. kind of go with what the next guy seems to think is normal. And you just kind of go with the flow. And I think that's very dangerous and can lead to a really isolating place where you say, I've got these good friends, but nobody knows me and all these types of things. And so yeah. I think that's something that I just want to be more conscious about and aware of even today sitting here is just actually being willing to show yourself to someone without that ego and without that judgment and without that overarching kind of omnipresent fear that maybe this isn't good enough or whatever because i think when you're not truly known you always feel that like that's a real loneliness you know and we all know that but sometimes there is that resistance that comes when you go to open it up and share something because you there's the unknown right and it's yeah. so silly because living with that sense of nobody knows me and i'm actually alone is way worse than the times when you do open up and share. And, you know, so I think that's something that we just don't talk about a lot. And it, it holds people back and it always puts you in this pattern of avoidance and not wanting to really let people in. And that has way worse effects long
0: term than anything else. Absolutely. Know? Absolutely. Very well said. Well, Terry, I'm actually going to give you the final word. Uh, and my question going to be a little bit different. If you had all the men of the world sitting around a fire pit with you and you were going to pass down some wisdom. Of what you've learned after working with tens of thousands of men over the years what would you want to leave them with
1: uh give up your obsession with strength be a, a whole real human being and learn about intimacy hmm. see traditional masculinity cuts us away from intimacy and People say that men are afraid of intimacy. I don't believe that. Men are afraid of domination, in the world of men, you're one up or one that winner or loser. Every man listening to this knows what I'm talking about. and it's what you you every time you walk into a room, you're evaluating who's above me, who's below me, how's my performance i I'd like people to just get rid of all that shit. And be with what's in front of your face. Yeah. And don't be above it and don't be below it, but just be with it. Men need to learn what with means, and that's my wish for men. Yeah,
0: awesome. So good. Thank you so much, guys, for being on the show. And, uh, yeah, looking forward to seeing how all of your journeys unfold moving forward, especially with the work that you're all doing in the world, so thank you so much. You're thank you, thank, thank you, you for having me. Thanks, man.